Plenty on your radio today, from Djokovic to Pope Francis and stolen focus, why you can't pay attention. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Morin, and here's what you might have missed. Um, It's a bit like someone is constantly pouring itching powder on us. And then that person is leaning forward and saying to us, do you know what, mate? Uh, You might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And if that public defibrillator hadn't been there, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be chatting to you. You wouldn't be chatting to me now, no. Basically, I flatlined twice afterwards, and um, they say I died twice. Well, it's a new year for 2022, and I encourage everyone to get behind all schools, maintain some form of positivity, be supportive, be hopeful, and trust the principals, the deputy principals, the teachers, the SNAs, and all the support staffs. We've all got education into education for a difference, and now is the time. And we'll start here and this very interesting new book from Today with Claire Byrne about stolen focus and your inability to pay attention. Now, a scenario for you, you're trying to watch a TV show or you're trying to read a book or perhaps you're trying to focus even on a conversation with one of your friends, but your mind is drifting. You pick up your phone, you check your social media and the news sites. You then go on to complain about your poor sleeping habits. You drink too much coffee, you crave pizza and on it goes. Life gets busier and your ability to focus doesn't get any better. But journalist Johan Harry says it's not all your fault and his new book is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. It's published by Bloomsbury and Johan joins me now. Good morning to you. Oh, hey, Claire. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much for being here. That's a very familiar story that I outlined there. And we'll talk about the big picture in just a moment. But I think the example of your nephew, Adam, uh, illustrates it really well. Can you talk to us a little bit firstly about what you observed in him? Yeah, he's a he's a lovely person. And I noticed that he, as he got older, he was just really struggling to pay attention to anything. It was almost like he was whirring at the speed of Snapchat. He was spending his whole life alternating between WhatsApp, pornography, YouTube. And it was like, you know, nothing still or serious could touch him. And it was actually, I'd felt my own attention getting worse for many years. But actually it was looking at him and some of the other young people in my life who I really love that made me think, you know, I really need to investigate this question of attention and focus. I ended up traveling all over the world from Miami to Melbourne to Moscow. I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on what causes attention to get better and what causes attention to get worse. And actually I learned that a lot of the factors that make attention get get worse were, are, have been hugely increasing for us and as adults and for our kids in recent years. And it's not actually that their attention collapsed. Their attention has been stolen by these big forces. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But mm. with Adam's example, was it when he was a teenager that you began to notice the attention span decreasing? Yeah, and I did this quite drastic thing. Uh, I, I, t- <laughs> I wanted to get him away from his phone. So I took him, when he was a little boy, he'd been obsessed with uh, Elvis Presley. So I took him to Graceland for a holiday on the condition that he leave his phone behind. And I remember when you, when you arrive at Graceland now, um, there isn't a guide to show you around. The way it works is uh, they give you an iPad, you put in head, uh, little earbuds and iPad shows you around. So what happens is you walk around Graceland the whole time, just uh, everyone staring at their iPads, right? And we arrived in the jungle room, which was Elvis's favourite room in Graceland. And there was this Canadian couple next to me. And the guy turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left on the iPad, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I thought he was joking. I turned to him, I laughed. And his wife just started swiping. And I said to him, hey, sir, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head because 
we're actually in the jungle room. You don't yeah. have to look at a digital representation. And I turned to my godson to sort of laugh about it. And he was just in a corner looking at his phone because from the moment we arrived, he had not been able to keep this promise. And I, and I got, I really lost it. I went up to him and said, you know, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you will miss out. You're not being present at your own life. And he, he stomped off and later, understandably, and later that night, I found him, we were staying at the Heartbreak Hotel and I found him sitting by the guitar shaped swimming pool, just looking at his phone. And he said to me, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And that was what made me determined to figure out, okay, what is happening to our attention and focus? And most importantly, how can we get it back? And Johan was surprised by just how widespread this is. The average American college student now spends, uh, now focuses on any one task for just 65 seconds. And the average office worker now focuses on any one task for just three minutes. And this is because of these, you know, I really had to change my own psychology about this because when my attention was getting worse, I would usually respond by blaming myself. Exactly. Exactly. You You feel (laughs) I am addicted to my phone. This is my fault. But that's where the hope really lies in, in the investigation that you carried out. We're not totally to blame. We're not primarily to blame. This is being done to us by really powerful forces that we can take on. There are things we can do as isolated individuals and there are things that we can do as a society to deal with these factors. But at the moment, it's a bit like, and this goes way beyond tech, but tech is a big part of it, but it's also a much bigger picture. Um, It's a bit like someone is constantly pouring itching powder on us. And then that person is leaning forward and saying to us, do you know what, mate? Uh, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And it's like, yeah, I, that's fine. Meditation, very good. I'm strongly in favour of it. But you need to stop pouring itching powder on me, right? <laughs> so we, we, and and it's interesting that, and this is one of the things that most surprised me, Claire, in the research for the book, that actually. I thought of this as primarily a tech problem. I took very drastic steps in my own life. I spent three months completely off the internet. But, but, um, but actually tech is not the biggest of the the causes. There are actually other, of the 12 causes that are degrading our attention and focus, actually there there are even bigger ones. And in a way, I came to think of it, the tech has a real role. It is designed to invade and hack our attention and there are things we can do to deal with that. Um, But actually, in a way, I came to think of the tech partly in that way, which is absolutely true and important and we can talk about the details of it. But also, if we think of the tech as like a virus, It arrived at a moment when our immune systems and our kids' immune systems were already down because there had already been a big series of changes in the way we live that were reducing our ability to pay attention. I'll give you a really quick, obvious one. We sleep much less than people did in the past. The average child sleeps 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. When you're sleeping, your brain is repairing and it prepares you to be able to pay attention during the day. When as adults and kids, we're deprived of sleep and we almost all are, only 15% of us wake up feeling refreshed now. Um, that profoundly degrades your ability to pay attention, which will mean that when your phone, which is des- that Facebook, the apps on it are designed to degrade your attention, to hack and invade you, when that pops up, you are going to be even more vulnerable to this powerful thing. And Johan spoke about writing his book and the types of changes needed for a better way of life. The key reason I wrote my book, Stolen Focus, is because I wanted to find solutions to these problems, right? Um, Some of them are individual things we can do, but a lot of them are things we're going to have to do, change the way we live in a bigger way. And one of the places that was such a, a fascinating solution was I went in New Zealand, I went to a company called Perpetual Guardian, 
that move from having a five day week to a four day week for the same amount of pay because they were just exhausted. They were working constantly. This has been particularly bad under obviously under COVID for all of us with Zoom. Even the word Zoom makes me feel tense. <laughs> um, and they moved. And what was fascinating was they produced more in four days than they had in five. Because if you are exhausted and chronically overworked, you can't unplug, you go to bed at night, you can't get to sleep, your brain is constantly rattling around. So that is one of the, and actually it's a fantastic campaign in Ireland to move to a four-day week, really good campaigners there uh, that people should look up. That's one of the big changes that I argue we have to make if we want to get our attention back. Yeah, well, I suppose it depends what you do uh, with your extra day off, though. You know, if you're sitting there scrolling through social media... Mm-hmm. posting and waiting for the ver- verification from the, the likes and so on. That's not, <laughs> that's not going to do you much good, is it? Depends, you know, how you spend it's that tr- day. It, it definitely does. But it was interesting. I interviewed everyone who worked in one of the offices for this company in a place called Rotorua. Um, and, and they said when they were less exhausted, that, look, they were still had problems with their phones and with these apps. But they were when they were less exhausted and less stressed, they were less vulnerable to it. We all know that with food, right? When you're exhausted and stressed, you're much more likely to overeat than when you're refreshed and and feeling good. And there's lots of these changes. We've got to tackle this at two levels. We've got to deal with the invasiveness of the tech and we've got to deal with the things that are making us so vulnerable to the invasiveness of the tech in the first place. So it's a sort of two layered, um, two layered fight. On the on the tech uh, people that you spoke to, in particular mm. the tech bosses, they know and they have the awareness to know that they themselves they don't want to live in the way that they encourage us to live or the users to live. Mm. Is that is that is that right? So it was fascinating. I went to Silicon Valley and I interviewed loads of the people who designed key aspects of the world that you know obsesses us and our kids. And I never forget, I interviewed this guy called Dr. James Williams, an amazing man who'd been a key strategist at Google and quick because he was appalled at what they were doing. But when he was still at the heart of the machine, he spoke at a conference in San Francisco in front of like the major app designers, people who've designed things that your kids are using literally now. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, please put up your hand. And not one of them put up their hand. Johan Harry, the book is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. From today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, Katie opened the programme talking about comments on parenthood from Pope Francis. And listeners have been reacting to those uh, very controversial comments from uh, by Pope Francis in the Vatican yesterday. Uh, in case you've missed them, I'll just give you a flavour of uh, what he was saying. He was talking about people substituting pets for children. He said that today we see a form of selfishness. We see that some people do not want to have a child. Sometimes they have one and that's it. But they have dogs and cats that take the place of children. And this may make people laugh, he says, but it is a reality. Um, And he goes on to say that the practice is a denial of fatherhood and motherhood and diminishes us and takes away our humanity. Gina Hetherington, good afternoon to you. Hello, Cathy. How are you? <laughs> He's thrown another cat among the pigeons, so indeed, to speak. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, what did uh, our producer say up there? It's kittens, not kids. <laughs> uh, do, do you... Um, Have an opinion. <laughs> an opinion on the Pope's opinion. Well, put it this way. This is coming from a man who chose not to have children or pets. Um, his name, I mean, is enough... Like St. Francis, 
Pope Francis. St. Francis was the patron saint of animals, where the Pope's name comes from. Of course, Francis of Assisi. Yes. <laughs> um, look, it, there are so many people who... who you know they're 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 not being they're not able to support children emotionally or financially and and that having them is selfish not not having them is selfish um you know a, a child is a huge thing in anybody's life and a wonderful thing I, I didn't go that route myself um i went the other route the one that the pope didn't like but um <laughs> it's it's uh, i mean we have even our staff here uh, one of them has uh, no two of them have children i mean the rest are just people who prefer animals to people uh, sorry, and where, where are you based there gina where, where, uh, what's your staff uh we have 11 staff uh pause animal rescue in mullinahone and uh we we you know the 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 way i look at it is like with climate change and overpopulation and people not being able to get houses and no health care and and then they want he wants them to bring more children into the world and saying that they're wrong not to. I mean, um, and you know. Can, and can I ask you, Gina, and I mean, this is obviously a very personal question, so so um, tell me um, no, no if you mind. don't want to. But did you make a conscious decision not to have children or, or was it just something that didn't come your way? I was Googling uh, sterilisation when I was 14 or 15 years old. All right. So, so this uh, is something. I have made my decision back that far. Wow. Um, and I'm now 62 tomorrow, next week. 62, yeah. <laughs> I lose track. So once you go over 50, you lose track. But no, I made that decision from the time I was a teenager. And I, I think quite a few people do, but they just don't come out and say it, you know. Why, why though? I, I mean, was there something... Well, you're either maternal or you're not. And um, I was never maternal. Um, it's just the way it is and uh, I preferred dogs to people uh, as in the company of and you know all our lives growing up we all had dogs Um, now my three brothers all have children I was the only girl but I decided I didn't want any children and you know I've gone a whole different route now I've over the years I've I I mean I have a girl that works for me she came to work for me when she was uh, 12 years old and she's now 39 and I consider her my child, <laughs> although her mother might have something to say about that. <laughs> and and she also has decided that she doesn't want children. Uh, some of the other ladies that work here have decided that they don't want children. Uh, it, it's a, such a personal choice for people. And for the Pope to come out and say something like that, I think, is shocking because, you know, it is a dig at women. Let's get straight about it, because men don't have babies. And Emmanuel was listening to Gina and he got in contact. I would say the first question I would have is why would the Pope make such a remark being a Jesuit? What would be the motif behind his remark? And uh, I would imagine that there's a lot of competition around the world with different religions. But leaving that aside, if you take uh, where the world is at at the moment in terms of the global politics, in terms of the problematics of climate change, the issues of resources, uh, mankind's failure to... work with nature in terms of how we function on the planet and so on. So there's, there's a lot of issues at that level. Then as a former speaker mentioned about the economics of the costs of children, but I think there's something much wider going on in the world. I think young people around the world, and it's not in, in, in Ireland, it's, it's like the falling birth rate in Japan. There's obviously various countries where they have a rising young population, and then there are many countries, the older European countries with a decline in population. 
But in terms of actually, if you move then towards the personal in terms of uh, not having children, having children, I would find it a little judgmental uh, from the Pope's point of view to, for example, people have various pains in their life. They have historical reasons. They have all types of perspectives on the human condition. And sometimes people are not able to cope with children. Maybe they could have a cope with a dog or a cat or they, they, they you know people have different ways of coping in life I think that it just come out with a statement and say that uh, people are being selfish I think that's correct because everybody has to make a decision from their own perspective everybody tries in their life to do what's best what, what they can do within their capacity within their family's capacity within their relatives within the broader society and so on so from my perspective I, I would be more inclined to be less judgmental and I would say that uh, everybody, uh, very often in life, people don't choose the life that they're in. As they often say, life is what happens to you while you're planning something else. And then Philip called Casey. Listen to the voices there and the, the notion of how tough it is to bring up children and the notion then that life is, you know, it's often quite accidental that you have them in the course of your life. But I, 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 do, I, I do find that... Uh, it's likely that this debate could get kind of controversial and kind of get distracted by the fact that it came from the Pope or whatever like that. But the thing is, um, with the European population and birth rate decreasing, there is, uh, you know, uh, maybe a necessity to focus on where we're developing as a society, you know, going into the next quarter century. Like, if people are having a lot of pets and the pet industry surrounding all of that shows how much is growing... And that that to that they are displacing their natural giftedness of love and kind of care towards uh, um, towards pets and maybe having only one child or in some cases no, that there is something to talk about in terms of the way society uh, through government and agencies support or doesn't support uh, young people, uh, you know, uh, in, in in their attempt to kind of uh, get it together to have a family and raise a family. That there is an issue that he's touching upon that has a wider validity. I, you know, Katie, I, I don't think it's really about... Uh, uh, it doesn't sound to me like he's making a kind of a, a narrow, like medieval type of moral judgment on people. Well, well he did he, say now, to be fair, Philip, he said that it's a form of selfishness. Well, maybe it, it, it's a form... It, I, I didn't re-engage with the whole thing. I just picked up and I heard the, the, uh, the notice on the radio. I said I'd, I'd tune in. But what I see there is displacement of, you know, from... Uh, average family size of three or four years ago into a much smaller uh, family unit, but where uh, pets, you know, arguably maybe do to some extent compensate for the companionship and uh, the directing of, of of love towards such a creature or creatures. So, uh, you know, and I think to some extent uh, there's a displacement going on there because of the lack of uh, supports for uh, for young people who try to raise children. Uh, particularly in relation to being able to rent or buy a property that they could settle in. I, I think that it, it kind of connects to that aspect of, 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 of our predicament in Ireland at the moment. And I, I do think that a lot of people, you know, uh, treat pets, you know, with a kind of a, a ridiculous level of, of, of care and concern. Like, it, it wouldn't surprise me if the history books in, in 100 years' time recorded the, the, the beginning of the first temples for dogs and cats and, and things like that. <laughs> I, I, I'm now I, hearing, we'll, now, Philip, I, I'm just letting you know, I'm hearing people out there now thinking, what is ridiculous about showing care and concern for a pet? Nothing. But if it's a displacement uh, from having, you know, a sort of uh, two or more children in, in the family, 
you know, you know, even without it being intentional. All these things are, I, I, I think Emmanuel is right. Not but, that but things pros, that occur as people, I, I, yeah, people's but, lives are happening. But if society was sort of, you know, sort of uh, provide better sort of facilities and developmental possibilities for parents choosing to have a child or a second child, I think there might be more, there might be a slightly higher birth rate. You know, all these people with pets, are those pets going to pay for their pensions and for provide their, their care for them when they're very old in their 80s and 90s with the extending age rates that's, that's happening now? You know, you know, society could be taking a very short-term uh, view of all this by simply saying, great, let's all cuddle. But, you know, what's going to happen in, in, in half a century? That's Philip on the live line with Casey Hannan. And in the morning, vandalism of public defibrillators. Today with Clare Byrne reporter Brian O'Connell was taking a look at the issue. And Brian, it was in your own local village as it happens that the most recent act of vandalism against these life-saving units happened. I didn't have far to go for this one, Claire. I live in Blarney in Cork and there's a thriving local community, but also, as you would imagine, a very significant influx of tourists pretty much year-round. So the village and the surrounding areas has a number of AEDs. They're automated external defibrillators. On uh, the 18th of December, someone decided to vandalise one of these machines, which is uh, inside a box just outside the Blarney woollen mills, which a lot of people will know. This is an AED which belongs to the village. It was installed by a local first response Responders group in 2015. They had fundraised for it and the latest attack on it was one of several in recent years, unfortunately. Now, I met with Jeremy Downey. He's a member of the Community First Responder team here in Blarney at the site of the latest act of vandalism against these life-saving units. This is an AED box again that's been vandalised for the fifth time in the last two years, I'd say. It's just ridiculous, to be honest with you. You know, it's a life-saving machine. So we're looking at the box here on the wall. It's at the entrance to Blarney Woolen Mills. Obviously yeah. a very popular spot. And inside here should be a defib. That's right, yeah. There should be a life-saving defibrillator here. Um, it's after being removed now because these boxes need to be heated. So we have guys that just pass here and punch the box. It's, it's just... It's just crazy stuff, to be honest with you, what's going on. The fifth time in two years. Fifth time. Um, and the cost to replace these things are not cheap, you know. We're going to have to upgrade this box now. The first four to six minutes is the most important time for this machine. So if somebody needs it, you need it quick. And if it's not here like this, it's, it's no good to anybody. So in this case, the front of it was smashed in, was it? Yeah, the front it was punched in. What is the point of that? Just crazy. Just yeah. I, I can't understand it. You know, they were caught on the, there's a camera here as well, and they were caught doing it. So, yeah, crazy. So tell me then about the success of having these in a village like this. There's 200 people trained to use these in the community. So these machines work. Do you think there should be stricter penalties for people who are... There should be penalties for this, yeah, definitely. It it seems to be happening all over, it does. The cost now will be borne by the community to try and replace this, get it it back up and running. It will. This whole box, this whole unit of box, the AED inside, and it is the best part of €2,000. We'll have to fundraise again now to try and get this up and going again. And Brian also spoke to Dr Chris Luke. But the bottom line is... If the heart stops, and it most often stops, and we call that a cardiac arrest, it literally stops, uh, it's most often caused by what's called ventricular fibrillation. And if that continues for two or three minutes, then the individual will die because uh, for the duration of the the fibrillation, uh, there is no active pumping uh, of oxygenated blood to the brain. So we have discovered over the last 40 to 50 years that if you give a large dose of electricity to the front of the chest, the area of the heart, it stuns the ventricles into what's called electrical silence. And then if you're lucky 
as so often happens, the internal, the innate electricity of the heart will kickstart again, will kick off again. Uh, and it's in a sense, it's a bit like being rebooted or reset as a computer. But you need to do that within two or three or four minutes at most uh, of the person dropping down. So if these defibrillators are, are damaged, then basically, uh, you know, the, the chance of, of uh, re re resuscitation is gone. I think people need to understand just how lethal it can be for a defibrillator to be damaged, you know, irreparably or to be stolen. You are literally uh, robbing uh, people within that area of a chance of life. It's exactly the same as if you have a youngster, let's say in the height of summer when it's very, very hot, uh, getting into trouble in a, in a cold, uh, you know, fast running river or, or, or a lake uh, and the, the boy, the life boy has been robbed. You know, people will die. Uh, the, the, because, in fact, uh, the rates of resuscitation before the widespread introduction of these AEDs around, you know, public places, it was really very depressingly low. It was of the order of sort of four or five percent. And now, you know, when you get rapid access to bystander compression of the chest and defibrillation, uh, you, you can have rates of 10, 20, 30 percent. Pretty stark there from Chris Luke. And to reinforce that point, Brian, about how important these can be, you met someone who is very grateful that they exist. Well, a few miles up the road from the AED that was damaged in Blarney is one outside a, a shop in Tower. I met local man Nigel O'Sullivan. He dropped to the ground one day in late October in 2016 and the quick thinking of passers-by and a working AED, it saved his life. On the way home from, um, from work on a Friday night and um, pulled into the local shop there at Claro Stores reached into my bag and actually found myself on the floor. I didn't know, right, but it was just a blockage from the bottom chamber up. The staff got involved. Basically, um, three nurses were next door in the church. They came out and they had a, a small uh, oxygen device in one of the handbags. The first responders then uh, were called, and um, I think it was just minutes upon minutes. They got to uh, Paddy Leary shop in, in, um, in Tower, and got the defibrillator from there. I came down and um, from then on saved my life, yeah, which yeah. was, you know, this traumatic at the time, sure, I remember nothing, but it was heart-wrenching for my wife when she was called down because uh, they were actively working on me, so. Um, and if that public defibrillator hadn't been there... Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be chatting to you now. You wouldn't be chatting to me now, no. No, that and the first responders, yeah. of course. Yeah. Basically, I flatlined twice afterwards, and um, they say I died twice... So when you hear that one of these uh, defibrillators has been interfered with locally and put out of action, it must be just heart-wrenching. Absolutely, yeah. The biggest... Uh, they don't realise what they're doing, you know. I mean, I'm proof. You'll meet me here. You can see me. I'm in the flesh. Um, and, but defibrillators need to be, you know, protected, really protected, you know, because um, they do save lives. And I'm not the only one that's saved, you know. So... Um, it's, it's just so important that they protect them, you know. It's, a lot of people aren't educated in this, you know. And, uh, you know, you see all the programmes on TV, but maybe there should be an ad, a bit like, yeah. you know, uh, I suppose the ad that's, uh, that's used for um, speeding and drunk yeah. drivers and, like, basically, this is saving lives. Nigel O'Sullivan talking to Brian O'Connell from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Faz Ajmawi was sitting in for Ryan and he was talking to microbiologist and sheep farmer Kleena Muldoon. Kleena Muldoon has a very interesting hobby that's also become a, a very good business. She joins me this morning from Bally Buffet in County Donegal. Kleena, how are you fixed? How are things? 
Good, bad, how are you? Good morning. Do you know what? I, apart from being full, I'm feeling pretty good. How are you getting on? Yeah, great. Yeah, everything's good. Do you celebrate uh, Women's Christmas there? Do you do that? No, not really, no. Ah, that's terrible. Maybe it's something we could take up now. So tell me this. Will you tell me a little bit about yourself, your age, where you live, what you do as a nine to five? Yeah, of course. Yes, so I'm 25 years old and I'm from Balbsay, which is a small town in Donegal. So I'm I'm a microbiologist for Northern Ireland Water. Um, So I'm in the public... um, uh, safety water domain there in any water in Derry and then I'm a part-time farmer along with that. Right, so when you're not working as a microbiologist, where where might people find you? Where would you be? You'll find me on the farm. <laughs> and what do you be doing on the farm? How did you, yeah. you, did you grow up on a farm? What's the connection to farm? You're from a farm and family? Um, not really. Um, my uncles would have had, um, you know, like sheep and cattle and things like that. And I would have been reared with kind of like horses, but I wouldn't have come from a background as such as what, if, what I'm doing today with the sheep, you know. Um, so at the minute, um, I met my boyfriend in 2016 and then he introduced me then into sheep. So from then on, it's been, it's been sheep nonstop. Why sheep, tell me? There's just, uh, I think there's just, they're, they're nice to work with, you know, they're not a big um, farm animal, you know, compared to cattle. They're easier to work with, easier to handle. And immediately did you feel a connection? I did, yeah. Um, I started, literally, when, when I first went out with him then, and we started getting, I started getting him in shape, I just thought, like, this is something that I want to I wanna do. And then I was lucky enough to start into my own breed. You see, I like croissants, but I don't want to be a baker. So you, yeah. you like sheep. What made you want to breed sheep? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's just the, like watching Martin do it, you know, that sense of achievement. You know, you're going out to shows and sales and, you know, people are talking about your sheep and people, you know, are ringing constantly, you know, you know, want to hear about them. They want to buy them. It's that sense of achievement and it's rewarding, you know, when you go through a hard time of lambing and you watch your lambs grow up and then you see them being sold. You know, it's, it's a good sense of achievement. Yeah, tell me this, what is there is there a particular type of shit? I just I'm fascinated how it's just something you fall into. I, I I'm scarred from from. Yeah. I remember going to my my cousin's farm in Wexford when I was like a kid, and they were doing the sucky things with the calf, and they kept telling me to put my hand in the calf's mouth, and I I was afraid they'd bite me, and they were yeah. laughing me, and then I did put it in in their mouth, and it did bite me, so I'm scarred a bit. So I'm just fascinated to how you like. Is there a particular type of sheep that you you fell in love with? Yeah, so um, Martin, he, he bred the Charlie, um, Charlie sheep and then I would have done a lot of work with him on that but he then came to me and says, you know, why don't you start your own breed therefore you have something that you can say that you achieve you know, yourself rather than come on with my breed. So I started researching in um, to different types of breed of sheep and then I came across um, the Valley Black Nose which is known as the cutest sheep in the world and once I seen them I was completely hooked on them. And I thought, well, we need to we need to source these. And the valley originally from Switzerland, so they're quite a scarce and unique breed of sheep. They're a very rare sheep, you know. So I was lucky then in the summer of 2018, I got in then to buy my first um, foundation ewe. Because, because funny enough, when I was reading, I was reading up on you, and I was like, yeah. "What well, would get her into sheep?" And then I had to look at the, how do you what? It's the black nose, the valley. Valley yeah, black nose. The Valley black nose. Yeah. Oh my God, that's that's one cute sheep. Like they're, that, yeah. they're very cute. They're very cute. You'll not see a sheep like them anywhere. You know the unique markings that they have. You know that precise unique markings. It's something 
unbelievable, you know, how they can have these lovely two black knees and two black hawks and they're just, they're so precise. Now, now treat me like a little bit stupid here. And you breed them and then you sell them. And what yes. do the people who buy them do with them? Um, eat well, them. No, uh, no, not eat them. They're too expensive to eat. Um, but people just buy them because of how they look. You know, it's that rarity of them. It's the scarcity. You know, it's the cuteness factor. It's the it's the fact they're not like a typical sheep. You know, if you go out to your commercial um, aspects of sheep, you know, you can't walk out to the field and, you know, pet them, you know, that kind of way. But if you go out to the field of Valley Black Noses, they come running. You know, they have that kind of, they're very docile and friendly, you know, and they just thrive off human interaction. And that's what makes them so special. Oh, so people don't buy them to eat them ever? No, never. Oh. No. Well, I know where they originate in Switzerland, um, they were mainly used for their meat and wool. But when they came to Ireland, um, they're that expensive that you just, you couldn't eat them. You know, they're just, they're too expensive. And as well, when you look at them, you just don't want to think about eating them. They're, they're too cute. To think <laughs> they're so cute. I, the thought of someone yeah. eating one of them would really put me off it for life. Like, it would put you off, it would put you off lamb. Clean and Muldoon with Bazaj Maui in the morning. And in the morning, tennis ace Novak Djokovic and his stance on the vaccine and the situation in Australia. Here's Claire Byrne. Novak Djokovic is awaiting his Australian Open fate in a Melbourne quarantine hotel. He's mounting a legal challenge against Australia's decision to cancel his visa. Now, the tennis player had his visa to enter Australia revoked amid a huge backlash over a vaccine exemption. This is what the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison had to say about the issue. People are welcome in Australia, but if you're not double vaccinated and you're not an Australian resident or citizen, well, you can't come. In a moment, I'll speak to journalist for Serbian sports channel Sports Club, Sasha Osmo. He says that Djokovic has been treated really badly by Australian authorities. But first, Chris O'Keefe is a federal political reporter with Nine News Australia and he joins me on the line for more on this. Good morning, Chris. Yeah, good day. What happened at Melbourne Airport when the uh, number one tennis seed landed? So when he landed, essentially what happened, because the fact that he put it on Instagram that he had received or he said that he received a medical exemption to fly to Australia to compete in the Australian Open. So he arrived at Melbourne Airport and Border Force knew that they have at their discretion the ability to check people's bona fides and paperwork. So He completed a visa, which is auto-generated, before he left Serbia. And when he landed in Australia, Border Force, our customs officials here, have the discretion to check if the paperwork is bona bona fide, if if the paperwork is legitimate. And Novak Djokovic did not show any paperwork to the Australian Immigration Department to show that he was medically exempt from being fully vaccinated when he was supposed to enter Australia. Now, the requirement to enter Australia for foreign residents is you must have two doses of vaccine as recognised in Australia. Novak Djokovic could not provide any medical information to say that he was exempt from that requirement. Mm -hmm. But this charge, which we'll hear a little bit later on, that he was treated really badly, stems from the fact that people, particularly his supporters, say, well, if he wasn't exempt and shouldn't have been exempt, he shouldn't have been allowed to land, that the treat the, the bad treatment starts right there in giving him th- this exemption, then seeing the public backlash and pulling back from that. W- what's being said to, to those criticisms? 
Well, it was very interesting because nobody in Australia thinks he's been treated badly. Obviously, the Serbs think he's been treated badly, but no one in the country that he was willing to play tennis, wanting to play tennis in and, and win $3 million Australian dollars thinks he's been treated badly. The difference is that he was never actually granted a medical exemption by the Australian government. Mm-hmm. Now, the Australian government, like any foreign government, they're the ones who decide who comes to the country and what the visa processes are. The issue here is not with Novak Djokovic. It's with Tennis Australia. So Tennis Australia wanted Novak Djokovic to play in this country to win the Grand Slam as the number one. So that was a pretty that was a pretty clear thing. He wanted to win a, a major title here in Australia at the Australian Open. Yet the issue they had was they did this they did this medical the panel that they said that was anonymous. Unless they told Novak Djokovic that the paperwork that he'd provided would have given him a medical exemption under their rules, so it would have allowed him to play at the Australian Open. They didn't tell Novak Djokovic, you haven't satisfied the requirements to get into the country of Australia. Mm. And that's where it's all fallen over. And what would allow you have a medical exemption? What are the grounds? So the grounds, are the, the, they're fourfold. So the first is if you had myocarditis, if, so if you had a, an mRNA vaccine like a Moderna or a Pfizer. Now, we know that Novak Djokovic is an anti-vaxxer, so he hasn't had an adverse reaction to that, given that he hasn't had a vaccine to begin with, so he can't have a reaction to a COVID vaccine if you haven't had mm-hmm. one. So well, he said, he said personally, I'm opposed to, to vaccination to give him Correct. his due. Claire, the bloke's an anti-vaxxer. We know that, right? And I think that, uh, I think in this case, the other, the other, so there's three no, other issues. But, but is one, it fair if, to if, say, just I want to be clear on this, Chris, is it fair to say that, I mean, he's not discouraging anybody else from having a vaccination. He's saying his personal choice is that he's opposed to vaccination. I'm just wary of of attributing that to him. when he, I don't think that he's been discouraging anybody else from going out there and getting a vaccine if that's their choice. Claire, there are people at the front of his hotel where he's in quarantine and detention right now in Melbourne. The same people who held up effigies of our politicians, Australian politicians, in nooses. He is an anti-vaxxer. That's their choice, though. I mean, he, he is not encouraging oh, so you that. Don't, so you don't think he empowers them? I don't know, don't but I, I don't know that. And you don't know that either. So to call somebody an anti-vaxxer, I think, is a fairly serious okay. charge. We know what his personal choice is, and, and maybe we'll leave it at that. But he hasn't provided any public statement explaining why he believes he's medically exempt. But he has said on the record before that he is against a vaccination. Mm -hmm. For himself. Yeah, okay, so... (laughs) Let's let's leave it at that. That's Chris O'Keefe there. Then Sasha Osmo, a journalist with Serbian Sports Club, also spoke to Claire. I mean, we've all seen it unfold in the past 24 hours. We've seen what's been happening. So I guess we just now have to wait and see on Monday. Because, but so far from what what's been going on, I think, uh, I think this was kind of treatment that uh, none of us saw coming. Especially after he was granted that medical exemption, you know, you fly across the world uh, to be told by the, basically by the same people that have granted that exemption that now you can't enter Australia. So I guess that was a bit of a blow, a major blow. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, at, at this point, I don't know. To be honest, what else there is to say? I think it's a, uh, it's uh, it's something that just you don't do. It's a huge misalignment between the levels of power in Australia, that resulted in a public humiliation of of a very high-profile figure. 
I mean, the main issue here is that uh, if he was just rejected on that medical exemption, I think that would be completely fine with everyone. But, you know, to to say that, uh, you know, two independent medical panels with Tennis Australia and with the Victoria government, you know, they grant him access and then there is some pressure from the public and then some politicians are looking to, to score three political points off of Djokovic and then this is the result, you know, mm-hmm. you... Yeah, I, w- okay. I wondered, like, do, we don't know, do we, why he was granted a medical exemption? Of course we don't. We don't know why have other players been granted medical exemption. We don't even know who they are. We just know Craig Tiley told us, director of the tournament, told us that there are a few players in, in, Melbourne, Par- in Melbourne Park that have been granted medical exemptions as well. You know, it's uh, it's obviously, and uh, the rules state that it's a privacy matter and that uh, you don't have to speak about it if you don't want to. I, okay. I think, considering the situation, perhaps it would be welcome, you know, for Novak or, or the other players as well to be more transparent about it. But it's uh, absolutely not their obligation. Yes, but as you say, he could have just outlined exactly why he received that medical exemption from the vaccination rules. He could have, but uh, that's not the issue here. The issue here is that it was granted and then it was revoked. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's not how a serious country operates. Talk to me a little bit about what the reaction to all of this has been in Serbia. Well, I mean, you more or less you can tell by but what I've been saying so far. It's been a huge disappointment, you know, because... Uh, uh, you know, his fans more, it's not just in Serbia, but his fans all over the world have, I think, already made their peace with it that he probably was not going to play in Australia. Then he was granted this, uh, this medical exemption. And uh, then that kind of takes a U-turn, you know, unexpectedly. So mm-hmm. it's, it's basically disappointment all over. Sasha Osmo on Today with Claire Byrne. Now, this time last year, what were we all watching on our TVs when most of us were watching this nightmare unfold in the capital in the US? You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Multiple capital injuries! Multiple capital injuries! The terror in the nation's capital today. A curfew is in effect as we speak in Washington. Uh, you wouldn't know it, though, if you just looked at the live pictures. You still have uh, pro-Trump groups and mobs in the streets. Uh, standoff with police. This is now effectively a riot. 13.49 hours declaring it a riot. Get them to the back. Get them to the back. Let's get some fresh faces up front. At least five people died during or after the attack, including four protesters and one law enforcement officer. The US Attorney General has defended the investigation. More than 725 defendants have been arrested to date and the work goes on. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. 
The US Attorney General Merrick Garland. Martin Wall is the Washington correspondent of the Irish Times. Martin, good morning. How will today be remembered and marked in Washington, D.C.? Good morning, Mary. Um, well, this morning... The President, Joe Biden, and the Vice President will give, give an address um, around about nine o'clock Washington time. It's expected that President Biden will place the blame singularly on his predecessor, Donald Trump, for the events of, the, of a year ago. As you say, there were figures given out yesterday by Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, in relation to the, the casualties. He said that uh, five police officers had died who had been on duty that day had died in the year since. There were in excess of 100 police officers, both Capitol Police and uh, Metropolitan Police, injured in the riots. He gave details of police officers being beaten, being tased, uh, someone having a heart attack, being dragged downstairs, being crushed in doorways. So the President will, will, deal, will, will speak, the Vice President will speak. Uh, there will be a minute silence. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, will uh, call the House to silence for a minute to remember the events of the year. But there's probably going to be very little on the Republican side. The, the reaction will come largely from Democrats, because in reality, despite a year ago, the Republican leadership also blaming Donald Trump for the events of the evening. In the year since then, the Republicans have essentially moved away from that position. Uh, people on the right in America, there are they seek either to minimalize what went on or to portray it as being something else. And it's uh, become essentially not a turning point in American history, but just rather another talking point in the ongoing uh, battle between left and right in America. And Martin, if it is still the case that Joe Biden is, is still not seen as the legitimate president of a, of a large swathe of the United States, would you anticipate protest in Washington today? There may be, but there's been certainly no call for people to, to turn up. But um, I imagine on this occasion, if there are demonstrators or protesters, I think law enforcement in Washington will be far more prepared than they would appear to have been last year, where they were essentially pushed back and they retreated, retreated back from the perimeter of the Capitol building. And essentially, the rioters, as, as, as everybody saw on TV, managed to break into the building. But I think I, I don't think anybody is anticipating mm. that there will be a repeat of that on this occasion. And on former President Trump. Let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump. One year on, he's out of office. But is his hold over the Republican Party still strong? It is actually probably stronger than ever, Mary. The Republican leadership, uh, who a year ago seemed to be on the verge of breaking with Trump, people looking at it from the outside that wondered and questioned whether the spell that Trump had over the Republican Party would be broken. It hasn't. I think there was a decision taken, a very calculation decision taken by the leadership of the Republican Party, that Trump was too big an asset uh, for the party, both in terms of the support that he can generate to get people out to vote and also as a fundraiser. So literally within weeks, Trump reasserted his control of the Republican Party. Various candidates, would-be candidates, wannabe candidates have made essentially the pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago where he is based in Florida uh, to seek his support. Trump is back on, will be doing rallies back on the road again. He cancelled a press conference which he was due to hold today and the general view is that the Republican leadership were quite happy to see that being cancelled because it would have brought back 
right into the public uh, attention once again the role of Trump and Trump's allies in relation to the events of a year ago. However, he is having, holding a rally in Arizona on Saturday week. So to answer the question, basically, Trump is very much in control of the of the Republican Party. And if the Republican Party, as is anticipated at the moment, regain control of the of Congress in the midterm elections next November, then it could be a very interesting uh, time in American politics. We had yesterday a very influential senator, Ted Cruz from Texas, suggesting that if uh, the Republicans took back control of the House of Representatives, that they would, he said it was likely that they would move to try and impeach Joe Biden whether there was cause or otherwise, that they argued that the Democrats had, as he put it, weaponized the impeachment uh, provisions of the US Constitution in going after Donald Trump on two occasions, and that that could uh, likely be used against uh, Joe Biden if the Republicans take back control of the House of Representatives next November. Martin Wall, Washington correspondent with the Irish Times from Morning Ireland with Mary Wilson. And on today with Claire Byrne, New Year, Good Intentions, How to Be Good with Money presenter Owen McGee. Uh, this is the time of the year when we don't just sit down with good intentions, we sit down and look at our finances because most of us have to after the December splurge, right? Yeah, a bit of a financial hangover after Christmas. And yeah, we spent money and we spent money. We spent a lot of money in December. And what I would always say is we've got loads of great intentions and we're talking about getting fit and we're talking about getting our finances in order. And the one thing I would say is that this is actually a great time. We all know that Christmas is going to come around every year, regardless of pandemics, regardless of anything else. We're going to have a Christmas each year. And what better plan- time to plan for Christmas than right now? Really? You have it fresh in your Yes, <laughs> you have it fresh in your mind how much you have just spent. All you have to do is either take out a pen and paper, write it down. And let's just imagine, and this is not a reflection on anybody's spending. I'm just making up an easy number that I can divide by 12. Let's imagine Christmas costs you 1,200 euros in total. What you need to do now is, is you need to say, right, it cost me 1,200 quid just gone. It's going to cost me 1,200 euros this Christmas as well, at least. And put 100 euro aside from now till Christmas next year. Well, and now yeah, you've got you see, Christmas covered. It's a great idea because you go in then really comfortably to Christmas knowing that what you what you're going to spend you have. Exactly. And that, and you avoid borrowing money or going into the overdraft or doing all the things that probably we did this Christmas and the Christmas before. Let's decide now to change this one little thing. We've all the numbers fresh in our head. So let's just go at it and say, I'm committed to that okay. and let's do it. So that's it, idea one. You're going to sort out next Christmas right now. And then the idea of sitting at the lap- laptop, opening up a spreadsheet, looking at all of your spending, that can be daunting, especially in January where you might be feeling a little bit raw. Yeah. And the thing about it, the real trick here is I bet you there's people out there, right, who are planning to start running in January or have started running. And none of them went out today and ran a marathon if they've just started running. The same goes for your finances. Take it a tiny bit by tiny bit. Don't say, "Okay, I'm setting aside three or four hours to take out all my financial documents and going through all the stuff and I'm going to work it all through. Just say, I'm going to do this for 20 minutes. The first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to tackle one topic at a time. I'm going to do it for 20 minutes. And in five days or seven days or whenever it is, I'm going to do another 20 minutes and just keep doing it. Regular, small little things done regularly have much better impact when it comes to your finances than trying to tackle it all in one go. Because what happens is if you tackle it all in one go, you give up and you you, you hate it and you dread it and you don't go back to it. Mm -hmm. So a real quick win is really important as well. The first quick win you can get for yourself is 
gas and electricity, oh, your energy a, costs. I was talking to the Minister for Finance about this earlier. And we know the average increase for people now is €500. Euro. It's, a, it's a big, big chunk on top of what you're already paying. It's huge. And what I would say is, is on average, people who swap their electricity and their gas provider will save around €300 Euros by, by swap, swapping from one provider to another. Remember, these companies are designed to say, we're really attractive. It's the same as credit cards and everybody else. We're really attractive. Do your energy with us and we'll be really cheap for the first year while you're in contract with them. Once, if you just keep it and let it roll over and roll over, generally you move on to existing customer rates and the prices go up. But if you continuously move, and it's really easy to move, and this is what, you could definitely do this in 20 minutes. If you pull pull out your gas and your electricity bill and sit down at your laptop, and start with the CRU, right, which is the Consumer Regulation Utilities or something, whatever it is, CRU.ie. And basically what you'll do is, is they have a list of all the people who are authorised to act as moving, act as providers to move you from one provider to another. So these people go out, there's three companies out there, they go out, they look at the market, you have your utility bill in front of you and you'll be able to punch in the details and they'll be able to tell you how much you can save and it's really easy. And I promise you, if somebody listens to that now, does it, does it this afternoon, they'll be able to text you in later on and say I just saved X amount of money and mm. it's around 300 euros and that takes the sting out of that 500 euros increase that you were talking so, to the Minister so about earlier So you're saying on. go to cru.ie the Commission for Regulated Utilities that'll start you, you on your on your road to uh, comparing the, the prices and the savings that you could get. And it's a real quick win and it's really easy and give you the motivation to say I did that 20 minutes and in a few weeks and a couple of days or a week's time I'm going to go back and do some other stuff. And utility bills is always the one that we go for first But the other thing we need to think about is there are things like your health insurance, your car insurance, those type of things. And when you're looking at them, the reality is is they probably don't mature or they probably don't get health insurance funny enough in January. There's a huge amount of people have health insurance renewal at this time of year. But if it's your car insurance, your home insurance, if it's September or it's June, well, then your task is you pull it out, you find out what it is. And if it's June, you do it for the month before and you put a reminder in your phone. The biggest problem we have when we come to renewing things is we leave it the last minute and we just go with the existing provider because you just you didn't put the time into us. So put a reminder in your phone that a month when you take it out, okay, that's June. So um, in May, my phone is going to beep at me and I'm actually going to commit my 20 minutes that, that week to go and find out what I, where I can get it cheaper. And do that for all your bills that are renewed on a year to year basis. Owen McGee on Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, it was back to school and Kian McCormick was reporting from Kildare Town Community School. Uh, good morning on this uh, cold and windy morning here in Kildare and doors open here at Kildare Town Community School at nine uh, for the 1,000 students and 74 teachers here. And we'll be talking to the school principal, John Hayes, in a few moments. But first, I met some parents and students earlier to find out what it means to be going back to school this morning after the Christmas break. Uh, I'm Rachel Mackin. I'm a six-year student here in KTCS. Pretty happy to be back and to be back in the school environment and back with my friends most of all. is just happy to be around the people that I know most. Uh, I suppose the main apprehension with most students is just the safety of coming back to school. What's more important for you to get back into the building or to have a safe environment? I think most of all I'm more concerned with a safe environment. I'd rather know I could come into school and be safe with learning than over anything else because I'd much prefer, especially when we had the lockdown this time last year after Christmas, I found it much more difficult to be learning from home. I much prefer being in the school than staying at home and 
trying to wake myself up and motivate myself to do school that way. So I'm much happier to be in the school environment where, especially in our school, it's very spacey, it's very open. Uh, hi, my name is Liam Kelly and I'm a student here at KTCS. So I have mocks coming up in February 7th, they're starting, and I was over the moon to hear that we're coming in because I can't imagine doing my mocks without having any practice or any, any in-school in uh, teaching done or any... Uh, uh, remote learning has its has its positives, but I think that in in school is certainly outweighs all of the the positives that remote learning has. And I think as advanced as remote learning is going to get, it's never going to outdo in person. Well, joining me now is John Hayes, school principal here at Kildare Town Community School. John, it sounds like people are happy about getting back after the Christmas break. What are your feelings? What are the challenges? Well, it's a new year for 2022 and I encourage everyone to get behind all schools, maintain some form of positivity, be supportive, be hopeful and trust the principals, the deputy principals, the teachers, the SNAs and all the support staffs that make Irish schools work. We've all got education into education for a difference and now is the time. Well, what mitigation measures have you in place here at this school? How at this, is the school prepared? Yeah, at this school, we've, we've the mitigation measures we have in place, we have PPE. Um, all students uh, at the start of the year would have been given a COVID-compliant kit. We have the O2 monitors. We have individual hand sanitizers. We have medical-grade masks. We have here, our school is 10 years old. It's a, it's a new building. We have gravity ventilation in school, in the place, in, in the new school, because it's a, a new building. So the flow of air flows through the school. Well. And, and you have medical-grade masks? In yes. place already. Yes. Okay, so that must certainly uh, allay fears for students and the students we heard expressing their concerns just a moment ago. Yeah, correct. So um, we're, we're well equipped and um, we just want to keep everybody safe and keep the schools open. 74 teachers here, 1,000 students. How many are out this morning? So we have about a quarter of our staff out this morning um, and I suppose, look, we have a number of contingency plans in place. John Hayes from Keen McCormick's report on Morning Ireland. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.